So here we are. This is number four in our sermon series covering the big story of the Bible, the big story of God and humanity and all of the created universe. So far, we've looked at creation and how God intended everything to be right from the start. We've had a look at the fall, and we've looked at how humanity turned away from God and the consequences of our choices. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at redemption, the work of God with his people, and how he's always ready for us when we turn to him. So this week, we're having a look at what restoration looks like in the stories of the Old Testament. We're looking at how these stories point us back towards God, and we're looking at how these stories and the words of the prophets point us forwards to Jesus. So we're moving the story on. We're weaving some more colors into the fabric of the whole tapestry of Scripture. The Bible tells the story of God, and as God's people, it is good and important for us to be able to live and breathe that story. It helps us to know whose we are and who we are and what we're for. Because these are not dead stories of thousands of years ago. And neither is it a book of handy, it's not a handy how-to of how to live our lives. It's not an instruction manual. The Bible is a library. It's a book of poetry and history and prophecy and biography and letters and so much more besides. We get to engage with the fullness of the text. We get to understand God's big plan for the world and we get to find our place in it. We're looking for glimmers of God's kingdom breaking through, places where God is at the fore, despite empire and despite exile. So I must confess, um, I started this talk in a state of some confusion, because the chronology of what happened and who was involved doesn't necessarily match the order that the books appear in the Bible. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about what happened when the people of Israel returned from exile. But then later on in the Bible, we have the books of Esther and Daniel. But these stories happened during the exile that I'd already read about the Israelites returning from. They're a retrospective. So I I don't know if you have this problem too. um, But I solved my problem by looking at a timeline of biblical history. Because the history matters too. When it comes to understanding how this book, this library, fits together, it's helpful to remember that these stories are grounded in real people and real events. This is history. It's not a novel. So the suggestion in the preaching plan today was that we start with the book of Ezra, uh, but instead I'm going rogue, as per usual, (laughs) so that I can maintain some of the chronology and the flow of the story. So I was looking at Daniel and Esther, and I was looking at how these were individuals who stood up in the face of ruling powers and empires. And as I paid attention to these people who birthed a little bit of kingdom justice, who'd brought some of the upside-down kingdom of God and foreshadowed the work that Jesus was going to do, I found that chime after chime was going off inside my head, reminding me of how people like this are scattered throughout the Old Testament. There are people buried in history who are all part of God's great redemptive work. So we're going to take a little stroll off the beaten path today. We'll leave our Abrahams and our Isaacs and our Josephs and our Davids for another day. So just, just out of interest, before I go on, can anyone tell me who Shifra and Pua are? They are midwives. Yes, 10 points to Susie. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have our reading now. So that's, we're looking at Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 to 21. 
Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were impressed, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name was Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So this story comes after Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, because then having Israelites in Egypt had meant flourishing and prosperity. The Israelites, God's people, had multiplied to the point where they were a threat to the reigning power, to the status quo of Egyptian life. And Egypt's answer was to enslave the Israelites, force them into hard labor. And when this wasn't enough, they went for population control. The Israelites had become vermin, essentially, in the eyes of Egypt, less than human and needing to be diminished. And so came the order to the midwives, kill all the boy children as they are born. Shifra and Pua appear only once in this story, right at the start of Exodus. They care more about God than they do about Pharaoh, and so they disobey Pharaoh. This might even be the first act of civil disobedience on record. Instead of bowing down to the empire, they choose a dangerous path that leads to the restoration of Israel. Because of them, Moses is born and allowed to live and grow up and become the leader who brings Israel out of Egypt. They refuse to partner with any other story than God's, and they continue to do the job to which they have been called. They help women give birth to babies. It's such an ordinary, everyday act of justice, yet it leads to change and freedom and restoration for a whole nation. So I wonder, what might an everyday act of justice look like in your life? I would identify myself as a shepherd and a pastor, but despite my best efforts, I cannot help and love every single hurting person. I cannot fix the problems of the world. But I can stop for the one, and I can listen to the one, and I can speak words of hope and truth. Sometimes that feels really small, but it's an everyday act of resistance, of showing up for the kingdom of God. For some, I think this restoration looks like fostering and adoption, bringing children into family, and creating a bit of the kingdom that way. 
or running a business along kingdom principles rather than the principles of the world. You might have heard of a chain of toy shops called The Entertainer. The chain was founded and is still run by a Christian man. The chain is nearly 40 years old, and in all that time, they have chosen to never open on a Sunday because they wanted their employees to have a Sabbath. They wanted their employees to have quality time with friends and family. So even at Christmas, they won't open on Sundays. They have 170 stores up and down the country, and they are flourishing despite the general downward trend of the high street. They've chosen God instead of the empire. So I wonder, where in your life, you're right now walking around life, where is there an opportunity for the restoration and the kingdom of God? I wonder. So we're going to continue our story. We're going to jump forward a few years now. So the Israelites have come through the desert. They're scoping out the promised land, and they're waiting on the edge. Joshua has sent two spies to explore the land, and especially the city of Jericho. The spies go into Jericho, and they go straight to the house of Rahab the prostitute, perhaps thinking that they would avoid suspicion of strangers from out of town. But someone tells the king that there are spies in the land and that they have gone to Rahab's house. And so the king demands of Rahab that she give up the spies. And she lies to him, just like the midwives lied to Pharaoh. Oh, goodness, the Israelite women, they're just too good at giving birth. We just don't get there in time to to kill the boys. Sorry. Yes, oh, I did see some spies, but they went that way. And all the while, baby boys were being born, and there were spies hiding in the roof. And for Rahab, there would have been a huge power imbalance between her and the king. The easy thing to do that might even have bought her some social capital would have been to give up the Israelite spies. But no, she has seen the work of God in bringing the Israelites to her doorstep. And she chooses the path of honor to God and resistance to the ruling power. And so we know what happens next. Joshua and the Israelites march around the city. The walls fall. The Israelites take the city. Rahab and her family are kept safe. And more than safe, they flourish. Rahab is one of the very few women named in the genealogy of Jesus. We remember her to this day. And what is that if not restoration? And so moving on again, the Israelites take full possession of the promised land. They're ruled by judges for a while, and then they demand a king so that they can be just like everyone else around them. They lean in to the shape of the world rather than following the example of those before them who chose chose the path of following God rather than the path of being safe. And so there follows a lot of kings, including Rahab's great-great-grandson, David. But things go gradually downhill from this point on. And finally, the empire of Babylon conquers Judah, and the Jews go into exile again. The people of Israel are back under the power of a ruling empire. And so among those in exile is a young man called Daniel. He was from the royal house of, of kings. So he, he was in the king's lineage of the kings of the Jews. And if you've grown up in any kind of kids' ministry or children's work, you, you probably know the headlines of this story too. Daniel was essentially a slave and a prisoner, but he used what power he had to make choices that honoured God. 
Rather than indulge in the riches of Babylonian food and wine, he chose to eat and drink only fruit and vegetables and water. And he was the healthiest man around. His friends refused to bow down to a statue of the king, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace, but they came out unharmed. Daniel is placed in a position of power and influence, but then refuses to offer prayers to the king, and so is thrown to the lions. And again, he comes out unharmed. And woven into this narrative and all this drama in Daniel's life, we find him both interpreting other people's dreams and having visions of his own visions of his own. The text tells us that God gave Daniel this gift. And so we see Daniel prophesying over and over again that humanity will build kingdom after kingdom founded on violence and oppression, but that finally God's kingdom and God's justice would wipe all of these away. They would encompass the earth and be everlasting. Daniel's resistance to the ruling empire is wound up in God's promise that the kingdom is coming and all is being restored and made new. Everyday acts of justice are bringing the kingdom of God. History moves on again, and the Babylonians fall to the Persians. And here we meet Esther, a Jew in exile in Persia. And again, we might know the headlines. Esther becomes a queen in Persia because she was placed in power for such a time as this, and she saves her people. But before we even get to Esther, what about Queen Vashti? She's summoned by the king after he's been drinking with his friends for a solid seven days. And she brilliantly and bravely says, no. She stands up to this man who has all the power over her, and she says no. She refuses to put herself in a position of, position of vulnerability in a room full of drunken men. She refuses to be used as entertainment for them all. And she suffers the consequences. She loses her position. The work of justice and restoration is not always easy. So the king decides that he needs a new wife, and along comes Esther. And she lies too, like the midwives and like Rahab. She hides her heritage so that she can be elevated to a place of influence. And then she uses this place of influence to keep her people safe in the midst of what seems like a turbulent time full of political game-playing. But this is an odd story, because nowhere in the book of Esther does it talk about the actions and the intent of God. This is a very human story, full of human flaws. There is murder and drunkenness, and in the end, it's Esther's uncle Mordecai, who is most honoured in all the land. God is acknowledged through prayer and fasting in a festival but we don't hear his voice. We have to actively look for where God is working. There is an implicit invitation for us to look deeper and see what is going on. So about the same time that Esther is in exile in Persia, some of the Jewish people begin to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. And this is where we come to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And across these two books, we have a story in three movements. So first we have Zerubbabel, who comes to Jerusalem with the intent of rebuilding the temple back to the glory of Solomon's days. And he comes with the permission and blessing and the favor of the king. In theory, this is a triumphant act of returning home for the Jewish people, returning to their spiritual home and rebuilding God's dwelling place. 
but it comes wrapped in empire. It comes with the gift of empire. And there are some problems. There were Jews who had stayed in occupied Jerusalem who want to join in the rebuilding of the temple. They want to rejoin their people. The building of the temple was supposed to be this unifying act for the Jewish people. But Zerubbabel announced that those who had stayed behind in Jerusalem were not proper Jews. They had not experienced exile, and so they couldn't properly understand what, all, that they, all that the people had suffered. And so he sends them away. This great restoration had been planned, but Zerubbabel got in the way. And then when the temple had been restored and when it was ready... The people waited for the presence of God to descend in glory in the same way it did for Solomon all those years ago. But nothing. Nothing happens. It's a bit of an anticlimax. Then a bit later comes Ezra, determined to restore the moral heart of the Jewish people and return them to the ways of the law that God had set out with Moses and call them back from a life of sin. And instead... When he gets to Jerusalem, he finds that Jewish men had married local women and had children with them. And so he takes it upon himself to deal with this issue. His answer is to enact a divorce decree whereby all Jewish men are ordered to abandon their non-Jewish wives and children. And this was Ezra's idea. It did not come from God. In fact, the prophet Malachi, who would have been around at this time, said specifically that God opposed divorce. And so instead of calling God's people back from sin and shame, Ezra creates more division and more disappointment. So then after Ezra, we have Nehemiah, who takes it upon himself to rebuild the city walls as a true sign of Jerusalem's restoration. And again, it's interesting to note that he goes with the permission and the encouragement of the empire. He goes with money and resources and an armed escort. But again, this was not God's idea. Zechariah would have been a contemporary prophet when this was going on, and he said that God's new city would have no walls, and that people from all nations would come and join in, and they would be God's people too. And so Nehemiah's victorious, restorative walls actually create division where God intended unity. So there was great hope for spiritual revival and a turning to God and away from sin and a full and final flourishing in the land But the hope for restoration didn't come to pass. The temple was neglected. People didn't observe the Sabbath. And this slow decline happens. Nehemiah finishes his book by saying, Remember me, my God, with favor. Essentially, be kind, God. At least I tried. So we've taken this whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament this morning. We've looked at a whole array of stories where people get to join in God's work of restoration by bringing their everyday acts of justice and resistance. We've looked at where there was hope and where the hopes didn't quite come to pass. In each of our stories, humans are involved. People lie and get distracted by power and decide that they know best. They are working inside the trappings of empire and the patterns of the world to try and build a kingdom that is not of this world. A kingdom that is not of human making and does not work on human lines. God tries with us again and again. We have a God of forever tries. God doesn't give up on us, but the span of human history that we've looked at this morning shows that bringing restoration where we're involved isn't quite doing the job.
Yes, there is more success and joy when we listen to God. The midwives flourished, Rahab flourished, and so on and so on. But in the big picture, in the full Old Testament, we don't see full restoration. We don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God yet. Because thankfully and wonderfully, it is not all on us. If we turn to the prophets and read Isaiah 9, we can see this. This might be a a familiar, familiar passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. For the people of Israel and for us, a child is coming. The promise of salvation and restoration and renewal. God's own self is moving into the neighborhood as the fulfillment of all the words spoken by the prophets. God's kingdom will come, and full restoration will come. Justice and righteousness forever and ever. For the people of Israel and for us, someone else is coming. Someone who is greater than anyone we've mentioned this morning. Greater than two subversive midwives who disagreed with Pharaoh. Greater than a rebellious prostitute in Jericho. Greater than a prince in exile or a queen trying to save her people. Greater even than Abraham and Moses Moses and David and Solomon. But I can't say more about that today because, spoilers, that story is coming. It's on its way in the next few weeks. But what do we get to take away for us today? People in all their brokenness get to join in with God's restorative work. We, in all our brokenness, get to join in with what God is doing in the world. God is making all things new, and we get to stand up in the face of empire and injustice and say no, no more. I think empire these days looks a lot like capitalism and the commodification of humans. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Egypt? and the Israelites. We can join in with our everyday acts of justice and try and shop ethically and sustainably. We can follow supply chains in our food and clothing. We can choose what media we're looking at. We can make tiny choices day by day that help lead us towards the kingdom of God. I have a lot of questions about how this ethical and clean living movement has actually become a whole new consumer category and how it's wrapped up in privilege that assumes you have money to buy all the things that you need to be ethical and sustainable and so on and so on. But I think these questions are part of the process. We get to join in and we get to do the wrestling. We get to engage with the empire and play our part, trusting that our imperfect offering is made enough in the hands of God. Because he is enough. And in him we are enough. Enough.